From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Despite rising rates of the coronavirus in most states, the American people are just more willing to leave their homes. We're seeing them go to bars and restaurants. They're going to the beach. They are even getting back on planes. But we're not always seeing them go back to the doctor. At least, not as much as we'd like them to. I've brought two of my colleagues who spend a lot of time thinking about consumer strategy. We've got Colin Gelbaugh and Becky Tyrrell. Hey, Colin. Hey, Becky. Hello, hello. Hey. Where are you dialing into the podcast from? I'm dialing in from Cleveland, Ohio, where I've lived for the past year or so. So I've got that nice Midwest summer. How about you, Colin? And I am in the heart of D.C. right now. As much as I love the District of Columbia, I have professed my love of my home state, Ohio, many times on this podcast. Excellent. Well, I can recommend the National Park here. I will add that to my list. Well, let's go ahead and dive in. So I think you both know that I've had a conversation on the podcast with our colleague, Anna, and we talked to her about the outlook for volumes across 2020 and how volumes, for the most part, aren't actually bouncing back to pre-COVID levels. Colin, I'm curious if you can share a little bit more about why patients aren't coming back to see their doctor. Well, one of the major factors, I think, is patients still fearful of, of coming in. There's this perception that all health systems had to do was turn on a light switch and say, we're open, come on in, and patients would come. But that hasn't necessarily been the case. We've been doing a pulse survey every other week to gauge consumer willingness to come to healthcare facilities. And one of the most staggering statistics or findings from that research is that still 18% of consumers remain unlikely to come to the emergency department if they had symptoms of a heart attack or appendicitis. Hmm. And this number is virtually unchanged from when we did the same survey six weeks prior. So I think there's this perception that healthcare settings are the worst place for them to be, whether that's true or not. But that's, that's hard for me to grapple with when you think about somebody that's having symptoms of a heart attack or being afraid that their appendix could burst, right? Those are very, very serious events where you would need to engage with a physician where we see consumers being much more willing, even more willing than perhaps we would like them to be, engaging in other activities, right? Like those bars, like those restaurants, why are we seeing such a different reaction to the way that people engage with healthcare compared to other activities? I think a lot of people have developed caution fatigue. So they're really thinking about risk-benefit trade-offs very differently now than they might have even just a few months ago. So there's still some people who might say there's no risk that's worth it to me. So whether that's going to the emergency room whether that's going to the grocery store, I'm just trying to minimize any kind of interaction or potential exposure. Other people might decide, hey, you know, I think I'm comfortable with socializing at a bar or I'm so sick of cooking at home that I want to go to a restaurant. And those activities have immediate rewards associated with them, whereas going to a healthcare facility probably doesn't trigger those thoughts of immediate rewards. Hmm. 
might be good for us, but it probably isn't personally satisfying. So you might not prioritize it in the same way that you would making a decision to go to a restaurant one night. Yeah, nobody is itching to go to the doctor ever. Exactly. <laughs> alone, I guess, in a pandemic. Colin, what do you think? I think there's also a demographic nuance to this. A lot of the new cases that we're seeing right now, especially in the southern areas of the country, are younger populations that might be classified as more risk takers. You know, the weather's nice, it's vacation season, people need to get out of their home or they feel like they do, nothing else for their own mental sanity. Hmm. And this is one of the biggest questions I'm being asked right now because, right, as we spoke with Anna about, every organization wants their volumes back. They need their volumes back because that's a primary source of revenue for most hospitals and health systems and medical groups. But when it comes to returning to that in-person care, do we actually know what matters most to patients and consumers? So we do know a bit about this. We recently ran a consumer survey on that topic. And essentially what we said is, hey, if you have 100 pennies that you can allocate across this list of things that you could see your healthcare provider do, that you could see your state do, or that you could see happen nationally, how would you allocate those pennies or essentially what is most important to you? And far and away, the most important thing to consumers of all ages, all segments, was having access to a vaccine for COVID-19. Another of the most important things to them was having access to a widely available treatment that reduces the symptoms and recovery time related to COVID-19. And that's interesting because that that directly relates to what Colin was talking about when it comes to the fear. There's still a fear of the coronavirus, even if they're doing some risk benefits based on their own personal sanity. But waiting for a vaccine or a widely available treatment is going to be a very long time and frankly is often out of the control of the hospitals and health systems and physician group leaders that we work with. So What can leaders actually do? Is there something that's more in their control that rose to the top of the list? Yeah, so that's where there is some good news. So thinking about those 100 pennies again, consumers placed 72 of those pennies on things that a clinic can control. And so at the top of that list is sanitizing exam rooms after each and every patient who comes in. Also important to consumers is having access to rapid COVID-19 testing and temperature checks for every single person who comes to a clinic or healthcare facility. So that includes daily testing for staff and also testing for any patient who's about to try to enter the facility. Hmm. Another thing I thought was interesting is consumers seem to find comfort in the idea that staff are wearing masks at all times and are not treating other patients who do have COVID-19. It strikes me that another thing that's in the control of most leaders is just how they communicate and market maybe some of these tactics that you're talking about with their patients. Colin, what actually is working here? Yeah, it's a good question because I think in reality, most providers are doing a lot of the new safety protocols that that we've been outlining, but it's not being communicated to patients necessarily. I think the overall message that needs to get out is that deferring essential care can be riskier than the risk associated with contracting the virus itself. So first thing you have to do is just highlight those safety precautions that Becky has outlined. 
But in terms of how you get the message out, I think it might be a bit different based on if you're talking about someone with a scheduled procedure versus an unscheduled service. For scheduled services, there's a lot of evidence pointing to patients wanting personalized messaging from their physicians as being the most effective if you can do that. But also messages from navigators, call centers, even text messaging to direct patients to Hmm. online resources can be effective. That's interesting. What about those unscheduled services? For unscheduled services, it's a bit trickier. You're going to have to be a little more creative with getting the message out. As much as you can give exposure to your clinical leaders through media interviews, social media posts, Facebook Live events, as an example, that can be an effective way to reach people. The second thing, I think, is to just make it really easy to find out where to go. So symptom checkers, chatbots, etc. And then finally, try to adopt the show, don't tell philosophy. So using videos, walking patients through all the safety precautions that you have in place can be effective to give them a picture in their mind about what to expect. And if I could just add something there, I had an interesting conversation with one organization that really thought about how they might customize those videos to their specific organization. So for example, they typically had a valet service that patients really loved. They can't operate the valet service as they used to. So now what they show in their videos is how patients have access to this golf cart where everybody is distant. There's masks. They'll get you safely from your car to where you need to go for your appointment. But even just showing that small and personalized detail was meaningful to their community. Wait, so they're sending golf carts to go pick up patients from their car? They are. That's amazing. Advisory board best practice. Heard it here first. No, I I kid. I kid. What I really like about what both of you are are talking about is that there's kind of this balancing act when it comes to communication. On the one hand, you of course have to communicate all the reasons why a patient shouldn't avoid care, right? All of the safety precautions that you mentioned and making that as, as personal as possible. But what I'm hearing is that you also have to give them a reason to come in, right? And that comes back to the point you made, Colin, about highlighting that deferring essential care actually can create a greater health risk for that patient. And you've got to give them a reason to to actually come back. Becky, I want to talk about this analysis that you did again. And I'm finding that sometimes it's helpful to tell organizations what they shouldn't do, or at least what should be at the bottom of their to-do list. I'm curious, what doesn't work when it comes to re-engaging patients? Great question. I don't think we can say what doesn't work, but we can say what is likely to be less impactful. So on that point, consumers don't seem to care much at all about visitor policies. That's regardless of how they're framed. They also don't seem to place as much value on things like contactless check-in, the availability of hand sanitizer, and verbal COVID-19 screenings, meaning the ones that just involve questioning and not an actual physical test that they complete. But the one that surprised me the most is that consumers don't seem to care as much about where services are provided as much as they care about who is providing the care and the safety precautions that those people are taking. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about this because I'm also surprised that in this ranking, consumers undervalued questions about where services are provided. What did the data actually tell us? 
So I think if a consumer feels confident that the providers who will be providing care to them are wearing masks at all times, that they're being tested daily before they report to work, and that they're not interacting with or treating patients who have COVID-19, they don't really care where that clinic is located. So is it a freestanding facility? Is it on a hospital campus? Hmm. It's more about who am I personally going to be interacting with during that experience that seems to matter most. This is interesting because it comes back to where we started and that perhaps patients, consumers have kind of blanket fears when it comes to interacting with a healthcare organization in general, because the data is telling us that consumers aren't ranking differently, a standalone building, a standalone clinic versus a hospital. Do you agree with that? I think it makes sense that patients would be fearful of all healthcare settings, but when forced to choose between a physician office setting and an urgent care or a hospital, as Becky had mentioned, physician office comes on top, probably because of what consumers were used to before all of this happened. There's the level of familiarity with that setting. I get to see my own doctor. They know my conditions. There's a continuity of care there. Hmm. I would bet there's another factor here about perception of urgent cares and EDs as places of sick care. You know, you sit in a waiting room at an urgent care or an ED, uh, you're probably likely to be next to someone or hear someone coughing, which is not to say that doesn't happen in a physician office setting, but just the perception of it being more places of sick care probably factors in. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. Thanks for listening to Radio Advisory. It's a tough time to be a leader in healthcare right now. There was plenty of change and disruption to grapple with even before COVID-19 came along. At the end of every episode, Ray says, we're here to help. And we are. Let us know how we can help you by taking our two-minute survey at advisory.com slash podsurvey. Tell us what you want to hear about, what you're struggling with, or what you think about the podcast. Talk to us at advisory.com slash podsurvey. And I'm guessing one of the hard things right now about trying to understand what are consumers looking for and how do I re-engage them with my health system, that's hard because COVID-19 cases look pretty different state to state right now. How much do individual market dynamics actually play into patient preferences? So I expected that those market dynamics would be huge in influencing what makes people feel comfortable returning for care in one area versus another. But what we actually found is that factors like hospitalization rates or death rates or even current infection levels in a state really don't matter to consumers, at least relative to other things. And actually, in general, all consumers, no matter how you slice and dice the data, care about the exact same clinic safety protocols that we talked about and also getting that vaccine. Yeah, that is surprising and, dare I say, disappointing that consumers didn't value those kind of very serious state dynamics. And I know that our survey did not ask consumers about their preferences with going to a restaurant, but 
maybe this tells us a little bit of why beyond just the quarantine fatigue and COVID fatigue of why patients, or I should say people, are increasingly willing to leave their houses. I think that's a great point. And I think that because those statewide numbers feel so abstract and perhaps even unreliable, people are more focused on the things that they can see with their own eyes that are being done to keep them safe in the moment, as opposed to these larger ideas about safety in a given state. I also think that usually there's this reaction or desire to take these types of surveys and break them down into demographic patterns. First of all, I'm curious if that is the right answer at all. In this case, we didn't see major differences in grouping folks based on demographics. So the factors that we looked at that didn't seem to influence those rankings that we've been talking about are gender, income, again, those local disease prevalence statistics we talked about, or even knowing someone who was impacted by COVID-19. None of those things seem to matter in terms of the rankings. What did matter to some extent was age and also the type of healthcare user. Hmm. So for example, are you a person with chronic conditions who requires a lot of frequent care, or are you somebody who tends to try to avoid the healthcare system as much as possible? There were some subtle differences in groups like that. Hmm. But I'm guessing that where demographics maybe plays a little bit more of an importance is on the communication side. Colin, are you seeing any helpful examples of that custom level of communication? Yeah, I think there definitely is some messages across the board that will resonate with all demographics. But when I think about the types of segments that you might craft custom communications around, Becky mentioned uh, one of them, you know, medically vulnerable patients. So patients with cancer, for instance, they're effective messages out there about how cancer doesn't wait and neither should you, Hmm. speaking directly to how the disease manifests itself and what the patient has to deal with on a day-to-day basis. It's not something that can wait. Another segment is the elderly population. These are the population most reticent, I think, to come back. They're the most high-risk So just the frequency of communication to them and the assurances that you make have to really be targeted towards this population. A third one, I would say, is the pediatric population. This is actually an area that a bit surprising to me when I saw this data, but it's the slowest to come back. That's what I'm hearing, too. Even the elderly high risk are are coming back faster than the pediatric populations. Right. So having special accommodations for these pediatric patients, especially drive-in vaccine options as as something for this patient segment. And then a a last segment I would call out specifically, which is not a segment that health systems necessarily usually target, but is the uninsured or the underinsured population, which I think if we're talking about deferring care will be really important going forward. We all know that patients with financial responsibility are less likely to engage with the healthcare system. So this will be a segment that you might want to target in the future. Hmm. And that sort of brings me to one of my final points. When I'm having conversations with leaders, I'm kind of getting this feeling that everyone is collectively throwing spaghetti at the wall 
everyone wants to get patients to come back in and they're trying all of these different tactics, whether it's actual safety precautions or communication strategies to try to encourage patients to come back in. But when it comes to re-engaging patients, is there a specific approach that leaders should be taking? To pile on to what Colin was just saying, I would really focus on regaining the trust of patients who have clear health needs and who were generally engaged in their care prior to COVID-19. And the reason I say that is because the consumers who describe themselves as never using the healthcare system or trying to avoid it whenever possible seem to want slightly different things from their providers right now. So they were tough to engage before, they're going to be even tougher to engage now. And rather than following some of their more niche preferences, it makes sense to focus on the needs of the people who like you, Mm -hmm. who have care that you want them to be seeking right now, and who probably want to come back in, but just need that reassurance that it is safe and good to do so. Colin, Becky, I want to thank you so much for hopping on Radio Advisory and and talking about some of these important insights. Like I said, this is absolutely a question that is top of mind for healthcare executives across the board. I want to give you a couple of final moments to just give some advice. Colin, what would you tell executives to focus on this week? I think it can sometimes be really easy when you're healthcare executive or an industry insider to take safety for granted. It's something that most organizations have as a key pillar. But I would say to put yourself in the shoes of the most risk adverse patient you can possibly imagine, one who might not often engage with the health system, design a communication strategy to reach them, and then double the amount that you're communicating that you originally planned to communicate. I think this patient safety issue or concerns that they have will be an issue for some time, especially as we see a resurgence in cases across the nation in some areas. And the people that are really proactive and do this well have an opportunity to create deeper and more trusting relationships with patients in the long term. Becky, what about you? I completely agree. One thing I would add is figure out what you want patients to come back for and why. I say that because most of the communications I've personally received from providers have felt very generic. So I've often made the assumption that my care needs can wait, which in my case, maybe they can, maybe they can't. But if my health system reached out to me and said, hey, you're overdue for this, or we'd like to see you for that, or maybe check in on this other thing. I would be much more inclined to take an action because the need feels more specific and it helps me make that risk-benefit assessment a little bit easier. Hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I'm getting the same kind of generic communications and also ignoring them right now, which I guess we'll figure out long-term if that was the, the right decision or not. Yeah, a lot of them are getting lost in the flood. Anybody who has my email address has sent me a message about what they're doing about COVID, which seems to be not much. <laughs> Well, Colin, Becky, thanks so much for coming on Radio Advisory. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks, Ray. Actually, before you go, Becky, when are the survey data going to be out and released for the public? Very soon. So we're publishing them in two or perhaps three parts. So our virtual visit utilization and preference data will be out early this week. And the rest of the survey data, which is around safety, site of care preferences, communication preferences, should be available by the middle of July. 
like Colin said, we can't assume that patients are going to come back on their own. But even absent something like a vaccine, the good news is there's a lot that organizations can do. Becky said it perfectly. Figure out what you want your patients to come back for and then give them a reason to come back to their doctor. And the more you can do to make that message custom and personalized, the more likely you're actually going to shift consumer behavior. We have a lot of data on this. So remember, we're here to help. You want to hear the whole thing again? I am not a huge podcast person. (laughs) Get out.